Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is Kimberly Barnes, who will be telling us all about the amazing things that she and her company, Might Be Vegan, are doing, but especially about food love, which is helping out people who are having trouble making it through these insane times and also helping them to try out veganism. That is so cool. I've been excited about hearing this. Yeah, no, what she's doing is very innovative, very very exciting. Uh, I'm really glad that that she's on this week. And on the Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Kimberly. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up. And you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern or 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Well, we're so international. <laughs> I'm glad you added that. I Whether thought we-, we should we should like stop using just American uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. time zone. That's true. Maybe we could really confuse people and every week we'll just do a different time zone <laughs> when we announce it. Well, anyway, whether we have a guest or we just have a talk amongst ourselves, we, we like to use that time to focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves during these tough times. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And proving that our Flock is incredibly international, uh, before we get to the interview, we're going to have a chat with a very special guest and... We got. We actually got to know and love Soledad Robledo at our Flock Friday calls. She is on almost every week, and she is a teacher and lives with her human and non-human family in Rinconada, Chile. And for the past three years, she has been producing her own podcast, Narices Humedas, I hope I said it right, showcasing AR and vegan activists in Chile and other countries as well. And she's now working to create a new organization called Justicia Interespecie, hmm. Interspecies Justice, which focuses on strategic litigation and education. She is a powerhouse. And right at this moment, they're working on a campaign that we thought you would all want to know about because it's really impressive and it really has an international aspect to it. So she kindly agreed to come on and share it. Welcome to our hen house, Soledad. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. We see you every week on our flock calls and we've gotten to know you and we know that you're an amazing, amazing activist within Chile. And the reason we're having you on on, on early in the show and as part of uh, the intro to the show is because you're working on a really timely and really important campaign. And we just wanted to ask you some questions about it and familiarize our listeners with it and find out maybe if they can and we can be some help. So let's start off with with a few facts. Uh, who is this guy, Zachary Rubin Ward? And what did he do that has folks in Chile so upset? Well, Zachary Ruben Ward has been charged for animal abuse committed repeatedly in the years 2012 and 2013 when he was working as production manager with the New Zealand dairy company Manuka in Puerto Octay, Chile. As we all know, as all our community, community knows, males are worth nothing to the dairy industry. So this individual needed, quote, quote to reduce production costs. And in order to do so, he committed horrific crimes, such as locking the cats up in crowded conditions and starving them to death. Then they were thrown into a pit where many of these animals were still living. Also, he made many cows have abortions and all the cats he killed were around 6,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. wow. I, I'm that's kind of mind boggling. Just it, it feels it feels like an episode of Bones or something. Like I, I don't understand how that happened. And then uh how did how did this sort of get out to the public? How did they learn about it? Yeah, um well this situation was uh, publicly known when a video in twenty fourteen filmed by Manuka's dairy workers in Chile denounced the hideous slaughter that this individual committed against all these male calves. He used a hammer to hit them on the heads. Uh, he injected, injected them 
with air or hot oil and he slit their throats. And as it can be seen in the footage, many of them were newborns. It is absolutely horrifying, but we all know that horrific cruelty goes on in the dairy industry all the time. And newborn male calves are among the most abused and they get sent to slaughter and they can be killed in horrible Mm -hmm. ways. So once this came out, how did, like, I just don't understand because I don't know anything about Chilean law. How did it become a legal matter? Well, it became a legal matter because there, the, there is a Congress representative called Fidel Espinosa that denounced this crime. And how did he get to know about this? It's because in the year 2013, he knew about uh, this terrible crime because the wives of Manuka's dairy workers told him about the psychological effects they were going through after following uh, Zachary Ruben Ward's orders. So th- that's how this uh, came to be known publicly because this Congress representative de- denounced this uh, this crime and then the, the legal uh, process started. And so they're being charged with a specific crime under Chilean law. Is it an anim- animal cruelty or something else specific to the dairy industry or, or what? Yeah, well, actually, yes, it's, 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 he's being charged of animal cruelty law because here in Chile, uh, our law says that animals who are slaughtered shouldn't go through, quote, unnecessary suffering. So uh, under uh, that law, uh, this man is being accused of these uh, hideous, uh, these hideous crimes. And so where is he now? Like just to bring us to modern day and time. It's worth mentioning that once he knew that a legal process was going to be to, was going to start, this man escaped. He escaped from Chile back home to New Zealand. So, um, uh, and also something that I would like to mention is that Manuka, the, the dairy industry, paid a sixty million pesos, eighty three thousand dollars as severance. So this man went back home with lots of money in his pockets. And Interpol has informed that uh, this individual is living now in the city of Te Aroha. You're trying to get him extradited, right? Is that is that the whole goal now to get him back to Chile to face these charges? Exactly. That's what we what we need to press the authorities in New Zealand. We believe in them. They're they are a progressive, environmentally friendly country. So we have to press uh, the Attorney General David Parker to make the decision because now Chile has done all that uh, that we we can, all that we could, and now the decision is in New Zealand's legal system hands, right? The other point is that, unfortunately, under uh, New Zealand's laws, they don't have a time limit to do so. So we have to press for the Attorney General to say, yes, we are going to extradite this individual. This is a crazy case. I I don't, I mean, I don't know of any other situation like this. And I think, as you pointed out, it's so interesting that the country you're trying to extradite him from is a very progressive country that I'm sure doesn't want this black eye of refusing to extradite somebody who's committed a crime in another country. But what, how have they been reacting so far? Well, actually, now we, we, we have silence. I mean, uh, now the now we have to wait. They haven't said anything. We sent the letter to, to the embassy. There, there has been silence, uh, but we'll keep on pressing. So that's what we're going to do. But on the other hand, we have had a very nice, very good support from New Zealand, from New Zealand organizations and activists. Uh, we have received uh, uh, support from the New Zealand Law Association, from SAFE, from Auckland University Animal Rights Group and the Vegan Society Aotearoa New Zealand. So we have the, the, the support from all the activist organizations in New Zealand. Can you talk a little bit more about the type of support that you're getting and how people listening to this horror story can support those efforts? Uh, yes, of course. In New Zealand, what they're trying to, whether they started doing is that they are trying to arrange a petition, email campaigns to members of parliament, and have a well-friend media coverage. Uh, the Vegan Society has already written to the Attorney General, Mr. David Parker, and the New Zealand Animal Law Association will file an official information request on the Ministry of Justice. 
and all uh, our community, all our hen house supporters around the world can support this campaign by adhering to this letter that we have written and also to share content or inform about this campaign on social media. Obviously, if you're in New Zealand, please contact the organizations that I've just mentioned. I will give you the email. The email is contacto.sedachile at gmail.com. I will spell it out. It's C-O-N-T-A-C-T-O dot C-E-D-A-C-H-I-L-E at gmail.com. Or you can go to our Instagram podcast, Derechos Animales. I will also spell it out. It's (laughs) It's kind of long. It's podcast, like in English, podcast, D-E-R-E-C-H-O-S-A-N-I-M-A-L-E-S. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes, too, if anyone just wants to look at what it looks like if you're yeah. driving or something don't don't write down what soledad is saying while you're driving <laughs> please <laughs> i'd love to chat with you a little bit about like who you are in in the animal rights world but, but before we get into that briefly can you just tell us a little bit about how you want to see this resolved like what is your ultimate sort of perfect ending to this story well i would uh, love to see this man extradited back here in chile where he will go to court uh, he will face a minimum uh, imprisonment of a year. Authorities, that's what they say, more than a year probably. So because this case is extraordinary as we were talking, because, uh, well, first of all, um, I think nothing like this has ever happened in the world. Imagine somebody being extradited extradited because of animal rights uh, reasons, right? And also it's very important that we make visible the horrors of the dairy industry. So that's why we are very, uh, we're working very hard on this case because it is important for these many reasons. Are you getting support from the Chilean government? I would think this would be upsetting to them that, that they have requested extradition and New Zealand is not responding. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, uh, all the the legal uh, process, everything that the lawyers, everything that had to be done was finished in December. And then comes here summer, January and February that nothing really happens. And now everybody is focusing on the pandemics and there will be other elections in April. So we have to press, we have to push. We will also um, con- contact uh, the, um, the representative that uh, denounced this case to get his support. We need to make noise. We need to, in Chile, we need to show that we are not uh, happy with this case and we want the extradition of this individual uh, as soon as possible. Well, we want to support your efforts however we can. And just to contextualize you for uh, the people listening to this, as Marianne mentioned, you have been a uh, familiar face to us as you're a flock member and you are a regular person who joins our Friday, our flock Friday zoom calls, which we love. We love seeing your face. And we've also sort of become smitten by your advocacy efforts. First of all, tell our listeners about your podcast. My podcast name is Narices Humedas. That would be like humid noses, like wet noses. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's a name that my son actually helped me to invent. Uh, he came up with that name. What I do, I, I regularly, like once a week, I get to interview uh, different activists uh, who are working on animal rights. And, uh, big, uh, and veganism. So it has been uh, almost, I think it has, yeah, uh, three years. And uh, the idea is to educate, inspire, and to make people vegan. Well, that's my ultimate goal. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been enjoying it a, a lot. Can people just find it on iTunes or whatever for those of uh, for those of our listeners who are Spanish speaking or who would like to practice their Spanish? Or yeah. uh, I'm sure a lot of people would, lo- would love an animal rights podcast in Spanish. So where can people find it? It's on all the platforms, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the platforms, all the podcatchers, right? And I have a, I have a, my website is narisesumedas.cl. Excellent. 
In general, Soledad, can you just kind of give us a thousand foot high view of what the animal rights movement is like in Chile? And I realize that's it's probably very multifaceted and multi-pronged like it is here. So it's not an easy answer, but I'd love to know what your general take on it is. Yeah. So uh, my my take is that it's growing. I mean, of course, it's not as big as I would like it to be, but it's growing. You can see that. I don't, I don't know. I started for around four years ago. And now you get to see more activists, more groups and more organizations working on different aspects, uh, rescue, education, uh, veganism. And, and that is really, you know, something that uh, that it's really important for us because before, like, animals were invisible. Then dogs were the protagonists after a terrible uh, cruelty uh, case that happened like three or four years in Chile. So we are trying to, little by little, show the public about all the animals, all the difficult, the suffering that they go through every single minute, minute in their lives. It's a movement that is growing. And as you know, I told you many times before on, on our Friday, Friday meetings, now we are working on uh, including the animals in the new constitution. We have elections in April. And so far, we have had a very good feedback. There are more and more uh, uh, candidates that say they will include the animals when they write out the new uh, constitution. That's amazing. Amazing progress being made. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's really been great to hear about this. And I am so like astounded by this campaign and that charges have been brought and, and this international effort is being made to bring somebody to justice who was viciously cruel to calves. It's just so moving, Soledad. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will, will go to those those sites to find out more and, and find out how they can also put a little pressure on New Zealand to get this guy to justice. Thank you, Jasmine and Marianne, for having me. And I'm so happy to be, to be here because Jasmine and Marianne, your work is so inspiring. Mm. Well, oh, so is yours, you. Soledad. Thank you so much. And who's the dog that we hear barking? <laughs> That's Stella. The other is Stella. Stella, right. We both have a Stella. Well, Stella's like, I hear you're on a you're, I hear you're on our henhouse. I need to I need to be on it too. Thank you so much, Soledad. We really are so grateful to you for uh, joining us and for all you're doing. We look forward to supporting your efforts and to continuing on top of your many efforts to change the world for animals. No, thank you so much, Jasmine and Marin. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be here to to have known you at least virtually, and I hope someday we can meet personally. Me too. Well, that was really cool. I love having guests for TOTS. We don't do it too often. Oh, TOTS is inside lingo for top of the show. So that was really fun. So thank you to Soledad and definitely check out our show notes to learn more about her campaign and how to support her efforts. But now to our feature interview, Kimberly Barnes is a self-taught private chef and the founder of Might Be Vegan, a plant-based media and marketing consultancy, and the creator behind the award-winning national COVID-19 hunger relief program, Food Love by Might Be Vegan. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan, Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food. Maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And, well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. 
Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R.com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Kimberly. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Miriam. I am thrilled to have you because I'm so excited about the work you're doing. When I was looking you up and, and trying to prepare for this, I noticed, saw that, of course, your umbrella organization is Might Be Vegan, and it's done so many cool things, but it's pretty clear that your current all-consuming project is Food Love, yes. which you started in response to food insecurity and, of course, how that became worse and worse during the pandemic. And so I feel like I feel like that's really where we should start, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the other things you've been doing after. And I feel like increased food security is actually one of those side effects of COVID that really hasn't gotten the attention that some of the other crises have. Do you agree? Yeah, I think it's interesting because so often when we think about coronavirus and the impact that it's had on our lives, we see quite a bit of attention going towards medical deserts. And it's, imp- it's an important part of us understanding how we got to a place where there is imbalance between various communities and the access that they have. But I think it's also important that we remember that in order for us to all live fruitful and healthy lives, we all have to have fundamental access to not only food, but jobs that pay us good rates so that we can afford food and medical care. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love the fact that you're both doing something about it and bringing more attention to it because, yeah, nobody's... A virus is a terrible thing, but being healthy before you get that virus is going to make a big difference. I've started talking about food love, but we haven't really explained what it is to folks. So can you tell us what food love is and how it has helped people try to get through? Yes, for sure. So Food Love is ultimately a technology solution to a logistics problem. And that logistics problem is lack of access to affordable, healthy food. And so Food Love, what we do is we leverage partnerships with brands, as well as um, technology that I've kind of sewn together myself that allows us to match families in need that are referred to us from our advocate network to brands that can deliver food directly to their doorstep. Now, we have a very strong focus on families that are low income, those who may be going through medical treatments and not able to get outside, and then obviously um, historically marginalized communities like BIPOC. And you were vegan long before you started this organization, right? Can, let's let's tell that story and then talk about how these things connect. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not going to say a long time before, maybe a couple of months. Um, really, I, yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah, no. So I've I've been vegan maybe three, four years ish now. I actually don't um, have a specific like anniversary date that I can point to. I just kind of did it at some point. And then now I'm exactly the same. Like all these other people have their veganversary. I don't know. I just went vegan at some point. And then I went back and forth for a while. And and at some point it stuck. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know that date, unfortunately. But shortly after that happened, I found myself wondering, are there people like me who want to eat better for, you know, whatever reason, and they're not able to find the recipes or even know where to begin? I had quite a few friends at that time who had thought about the idea, but just never took the plunge. And so I created initially Might Be Vegan as a place for people to feel safe to try going vegan. I'm sure that you've experienced or at least seen that sometimes in the vegan community when you're first getting started, it can be overwhelming. You know, there's so much information. And then sometimes you go from feeling overwhelmed to also feeling criticized and judged for not understanding or not knowing. So My Be Vegan was literally a place for me to publish what I was working on as far as the recipes that I was creating, because I already was well known amongst my community about as a someone who prepares really good food. And so now as I'm learning how to do this in the vegan space, I wanted to bring them along with me. And so that's really how it started. 
I, I really love that. And I hadn't really thought about that, that name until you started to talk about it this way. Like I might be vegan. That's a really good thing to be able to say. I, for a long time when I went vegan, I didn't tell anybody because I didn't know whether I was going to stay vegan. I didn't really know what it meant. So yeah, I, that would have been a great phrase for me to have. I might be vegan. I might, I might not. <laughs> All right, let's get back to food love. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the vegan trajectory later. But because of the work you're doing right now, vis-a-vis the pandemic. I really want to focus on that first. And so what what are the connections between food insecurity, which is your focus with food love, and animal agriculture? So I love this question because so often when we think about the things that we eat, we also we don't often think about the byproduct or the results or the impact that the things that we're consuming are having on people, the environment, and the animals. I know that for me personally, when I saw food prior to becoming vegan, it was just, okay, here's my food. I didn't think about that impact. I didn't think about what that meant for my community. But now I do. And Part of that message and part of what we are sharing with our families is the understanding that meat production has a strong impact on your wellness, not just meat consumption. So I've, I've read so many studies. I've even created a video around the pig farms in North Carolina and how the families that live in these areas have higher occurrences of illness, as well as things like um, asthma. And it can be tied directly to the pig farms that are near them. And so when I look forward as a someone coming from North Carolina, and I'm looking at how I know what that smells like to live near a pig farm, I wonder what a person's life would be like if that wasn't there? What would their health situation be like if that was never there? So when I think about the intersection of food insecurity and also meat consumption, we have to remember that so often we're eating, we're consuming calories and not so much things that are going to help our bodies in the long run. And so in as much as we believe and we've we've been informed or taught that meat is healthy for our bodies, so often that's not necessarily the case, especially in the way that meat is produced. And so you have that kind of dual experience where you're living in a community and the production of that meat is harming you. And then you have the consumption of that meat that's harming you. And it's, it's sort of like a double-edged sword. And so unfortunately, when you have so much meat production and so much meat on the shelves, you'll often see that there's not as much fresh fruit and vegetables. And that's what we see in areas that we call food apartheid. And so now people aren't able to access the things that they need to live a a fruitful life and not have to be dependent on pharmaceuticals to survive. Yeah, and to be so much more vulnerable when when illnesses come along, uh, which is what has happened during COVID. uh, The fact that people are in poor health is not going to help them if they catch one of these viruses. So let's talk a little bit about how this works. Uh, Tell us about your partners in this effort. Who are they and how have you been able to get them involved? Yeah. So the process for identifying and recruiting and harassing our partners <laughs> <laughs> until they sign on, it is it is a labor of love because we've had so many brands that have reached out to us to partner with us. And then again, we've done quite a bit of outreach, but ultimately that process looks like this. We, we send them a message, tell us what we're doing, why what we're doing matters. And then we invite them to find a way to support what we're doing. And it sounds pretty straightforward, but as I said, there's quite a bit of harassing that goes along with it. I mean, we've, we're emailing, we're calling, we're, we're doing the work. And I think the work for us means a lot like what you would see in a development office if you're like a working in fundraising. There's lots of phone calls, lots of messaging. So once we finally get them on board and, and they've committed to a certain amount of food that they're going to donate, whether that's weekly deliveries, monthly deliveries, a one-time batch, whatever that is, once they are signed on, it becomes relatively simple for them because now the work is all on me and my team of volunteers. And so what we do is once our advocate network 
brings a family to us, we identify which partner is going to be matched with them. So if we have a regional partner that can serve them, say hypothetically in New Jersey, where we have voice mode, they do meal prep and meal delivery in New York and New Jersey, as well as some other states um, in the, I guess, the tri-state or if they need a national partner because they're in some rural town that doesn't, we don't have a regional partner for. Once we do that matching, then either we place the orders using the system that the brand has provided to us, or we just send them a spreadsheet of names and then that brand will handle the orders from there. And I would imagine that one of the things you have to assure them is that they're sending this food to the right people, the people who need it. How do you, how do you make sure of that? Sure. So our advocate network is crucial to how we do what we do. Part of the role of one of our team members is to recruit advocates. Now, advocates can be social workers, caseworkers, anybody who's working within the community and can see the need firsthand up close and personal. And so that way, what we're not having to do is ask families to verify their situation because that just felt super uncomfortable to me because, totally. I mean, we could have, you know, opened the list to everybody, but that exposed us to two things. One, the risk of fraud, um, intentional or unintentional. Um, And then it also just was uncomfortable to be able to say, are you actually in need? Can you let us know how it's just, it's just, and then also, I guess there's also a third is, is we don't have, we don't have the resources that a larger business like ours or a nonprofit that would do the same thing. We don't have those kinds of resources. Ours are limited. This is, this program is just under a year old and there aren't as many vegan meal delivery companies as there are companies that deliver your contemporary type of meals. So we're limited in just how much we can do. So because of that, we didn't want just an open wide list where any and everybody could come through. And then now we've used up all of our resources in a month and now we can't really help anybody because Mm -hmm. we've not, you know, vetted them. Are the partners mostly meal delivery services? Are they exclusively meal delivery services or also there are also some vegan companies who just make a few different types of products. How does that work? So our goal with each family is to get to them a meal. So a meal could mean it's a meal kit. It could mean it's a prepared meal, something that they can put on the stove quickly and heat up or something that they can throw in the microwave. The reason that we approached it this way is because in many cases, we're introducing people to plant-based eating. And I know what it was like when I was first introduced to vegan. I had no idea what to do with it. Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. Like, I'm used to, like, chicken is not the main thing today. Like, what do I do? <laughs> so I, I had to make sure that people had a low barrier of entry to try vegan food. So we didn't want to just send them a lot of ingredients or random things and then just have the expectation that they're going to eat vegan fully because it's probably not going to happen if they're not already vegan. We do we do have a few brands that will uh, will partner with us to send what we call mini batches. So we worked with Light Life and Field Roast And what they did is we had already served a group of families back, I think it was maybe September, October, and they wanted to donate some meats. And these are obviously vegan meats. And so I said, well, I don't want to just send the meat. So instead of sending this to a new family, how about we send it to an existing family? We ask them, hey, are you still in need? And then we send them a box of your meats and cheeses. And so that's what we did. So we try to be flexible with the partners that come on. It's just a matter of making sure that we do send people full meals that will get them full. And then if we send them some extras on the side, then that's also great. But it's not our our bread and and butter. (laughs) Right, so to speak. Uh, Do you want to shout out some of these partners? Um, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, let us know who they are. So Splendid Spoon is um, one of our leading partners. They are one of our national partners that help us to get to even the most remote areas. Um, Voice Mode, I did mention before, or Organic, they have actually partnered with us in a unique way. They do lots of supplements and protein powders that actually 
it tastes really good, which is sort of a side note because I've I've not really found too many protein powders that aren't like chalky and gross. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's not like, this is not an ad. This is actually truth. We say that all the time on our hand house. We don't have ads. Sometimes <laughs> we just like something and we like to tell people about it. You know? Absolutely. So they've been a partner. Um, Mosaic Foods has partnered with us. They've sent out some um, one of our mini batches. Uh, we've also worked with, man, there's so many of them. Follow Your Heart actually is one of our partners as well. So even though they haven't sent out product, they've actually been a sponsor so that we could send oh, cool. out more product. Yeah. And where is there a place on your website too where people can find the list of partners? Oh, because yeah. I'm sure people would want to support them. <laughs> Definitely. So mightbevegan.co forward slash about food love, or you mm-hmm. can just go to mightbevegan.co and then click food love in the menu bar. But we do have our partners listed there. And there's there oh. are honestly a lot more than we have included. Modern Love out of Omaha has supported us. Oh, Modern Love. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Isa Chandra Moskowitz. Yes. Yes. I love her, her. Yeah. So she did quite a bit of, um, we had a, a family that I think was living in a um, trailer park and they didn't have any transportation to get to where they were going. And I think it was maybe like six or seven people living in that one place. It was so many people. So I asked her, you know, could she prepare some things and just, you know, take them because they were neighbors, not technically neighbors, but in the same area. In this, you know. Yeah. So, so many. Um, Abby's plant-based cuisine, which is out of Houston. The list just goes on and on and on. <laughs> so are, are they in it? A- just to help? Do they benefit in some way other than being mentioned on our house? <laughs> or or are they just is they just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts? They have no benefit. And I think that's really important to note because so often when we are working with brands, you know, they often come in with the idea, okay, well, what do I get from them? Yeah. Um, what what is my sponsorship level? How many ads am I gonna see placed? You know, where's my name gonna end up? And I'm like, you know, this is not what this is about. Right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and we need your help. And every single brand, no matter where they come in, no matter what sponsorship level, I say that in quotes, they they contribute, they get the same amount of attention. And I had some brands reach, say back to me when I said that no matter what you give, you get the same amount of, of, of quote, advertising from, you know, my platform. They said, we've never heard that before. Like what, like what motivated that? That sounds like super weird. And I said, it's the idea of equity and equity is something that we've been pushing in the the anti-racism movement. It's the idea that not every person has the same amount of access. Not everyone has the same amount of resources. And so sometimes in order for us to achieve equity, we have to give and take. We have to amplify one group more than we do another group because they're already being amplified. But the fundamental, the, the theory is that do if you do your best, then your best may not be equal to someone else's, but it's still your best. And because it's your best, I'm going to amplify you the same as if someone gave a million dollars versus your $5,000, because we're in the middle of a pandemic and not everybody, not every business can afford to do something major like that. Absolutely. So it's odd, but it works for us. And in many cases, the brands aren't really even interested in that kind of promotion. They just really are showing up to participate. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. And I I love that way of thinking about it. And especially for vegan businesses. Some of them really are struggling and just starting up and whatever. And and yeah, they really need that kind of uh understanding of what their capabilities are. And you know, it sounds clear I was gonna ask you, how do you keep people safe? But it sounds like this is just kind of automatically safe. I mean, in pandemic terms, that there's really no extra contact be- between people and all of this can be done remotely. It's just getting food to people. Correct. We this is one hundred percent remote. It's a national program that is run from a few laptops. And I actually created it with that in mind because I wanted to help. But I also at that time was, I I had moved back to North Carolina. I was staying with my mom. The reason, several reasons, but the primary was because my grandmother was ill and my aunt was ill and it was very possible that they were going to pass, which they both did. I'm so so sorry. Thank you. So I wanted to be close in order to at least spend time with them before their departure. And so I was in North Carolina. My mom, she's, you know, has 
decent health, but she also has health concerns and um, she has many of those pre-existing conditions that make you more vulnerable to COVID. So I could not go out and be as active as I would have normally been because I didn't want to unintentionally bring something back to my mom. So I had to figure out how can I help someone without leaving the house? And how can I um, help people and maybe even get some people to work with me and then keep them safe because I don't know their circumstances. And so that's why it was created in this way. And I think it's a model that I would encourage other nonprofits. Our business is a for-profit business with a, a philanthropic program. So it's not technically a nonprofit business, but nonprofit businesses, I feel, can learn from this idea that we can still get food to people without the cost often of warehousing products or the cost of potentially exposing people to illness. Um, there's a way to do that. And it, it gives us the room to expand beyond what our neighborhood pantry can even do. Uh, yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. And I, I love to hear things that have come out of COVID that turned out to be good ideas anyway. That's always a little reassuring. <laughs> we haven't wasted the entire last year. A lot of what you've done here is just connect people to other people who they can help or who who can can get help from them. Would you consider that your superpower? <laughs> I don't know if that's my superpower. I think begging well, one of them. I should say one of them. I don't want to limit you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know. Potentially. I think that's the superpower of, of food love, you know, being able to, to make connections. But I think also one of my, this, this superpower could actually just be my ability to, to, to beg really hard and ask people for <laughs> I think that's part of my thing because I think that actually feeds into some of the other work that I do on social media in the way of like brand accountability. And it's just like harassing people until they do things that are better. So, <laughs> so I, I, I think that might be my superpower. So how do you, I mean, is this, is Food Love a profit-making enterprise? I mean, I'm just wondering, like, where's the profit? I'm, <laughs> I'm not seeing There's it. There's <laughs> none. We don't, so, so Food Love itself does not make any profit. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yes. Yeah. So, no, the, the program is run based on the sponsorships that we get from brands and the food that goes out. Every sponsorship that we get from a brand that's financial is always assigned to a specific task. So when Aura Organic, for example, said, you know, we want to support what you're doing, um, what is it that you need? And I said, well, we need somebody who can do yada, yada. I'd love to be able to pay someone because right now we have all volunteers and, and as much as they are incredible, I all, I've given them all one single task. So they only have, you know, a few minutes of day that they have to commit that keeps them focused and also committed. But we need someone who can work with me because I don't even earn from the Food Love Project itself. So I need someone who can help me that's going to be dedicated to some of these tasks because even though I have not taken a salary for like the past six months, now I have to actually do things that make money so that I can, you know, live yeah, and live. all that. <laughs> so yeah. That is a, a kind of a standard need. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, that's what, so we assign that particular, that funding to an actual role. So now that has a funded role, but again, it's not money-making. Okay. So what are the next steps? What, uh, Assuming, uh, knock on wood or whatever, we get a handle on this thing this year, food insecurity is not going to go away, nor is the need for people to eat healthier. So do you see this as a, a permanent ongoing project? Yes, absolutely. Getting started, that was not necessarily my plan. My plan was to, let's see if we can run this through the course of the pandemic, and then maybe we can retire it. But I've realized as we've gotten to know families, we've heard from our advocates that this is an issue that is ongoing, as you um, mentioned, and we have a method to help people that steps outside of the traditional food bank and food pantry sort of idea. So I think there is an opportunity for us to not only continue delivering meals to families, but look at how we can take this technology approach and possibly address food insecurity nationally in the same way that we're addressing temporary emergency food insecurity. So I have quite a few ideas about how we can approach this, but, but I don't want to be I don't want to be the savior coming in to like, hey, these are the things that you need, you know, here's what I'm going to give you. I want to take some time over the next few months and 
connect with community organizers who've been working daily in this effort um, in their communities and talk to them about what would be big picture, ideally, what your community needs. What are what have you seen? What works? And then figure out how we can scale it using technology. Ultimately, it's like, how do we think about this in the way that startups think about solving problems? Because so often we we focus only on, you know, let's do everything grassroots from the ground up. And I'm like, well, let's do both. Can we can we go big picture? And then also grassroots at the same time and possibly meet in the middle and solve this so that people aren't perpetually having to go to a food bank. Maybe they have their own source of food because we've seen right now that I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the gentleman that started the supermarket concept. But prior to that, you know, we would have to go to multiple places to get the foods that we need. And so the supermarket was like this cool idea where you could like self shop and you go down these, you know, aisles and you pick up what you need. And then you go to this one location and you pay for it. And that's all great and dandy. But the problem is, it's now centralized and your access to food is centralized. And if you don't live no, near those areas or can't afford those prices, you don't have access to now healthy food. So my goal is to help us to start thinking about how do we decentralize food so that more people have their own individual access. Yeah, that, that, you, you seem to have really thought about all of the different pieces of of approaching this project. And where you could fit in and not try to take over from other people, but be an add-on right. uh, and work together. So, and, and that's a really, I think that's a really powerful way to think about it. And uh, tell us about some of, well, I, I, I don't want to leave this until we finish the topic. And actually there was one other thing I wanted to ask about the recipients of these packages. And do you have any feedback about how, because they, they generally receive one package, right? It's it's not an ongoing we're taking over your diet for you. <laughs> it's 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 a gift. And I'm just wondering if you have any feedback about how that gift affects people, whether whether they do start thinking whether about plant-based eating, whether uh it, it changes the way they think about food. How, do you do you track that at all? Yes. So that's a great question because so much of what we're also thinking about this year is how to better track some of what we're doing, but I can tell you about that in a minute. So to answer the question, yes, we do have families that have provided us feedback. Sometimes the delivery is one box. Sometimes it's multiple boxes. It just depends okay. on the size of the family. So if you if it's just you at home, you're probably just going to get one box of multiple meals that's going to feed you for about a week. But if you've got eight people in your household, you might get five, six boxes from us because we recognize that there are a lot of mouths in there. Now, what we do also offer in addition to just sending food is we also send resources. So we send resources that help people to find additional food directly based on their zip code. And then we also send them materials that help them think through what it would be like to add more vegetables to their diet. We don't just ask them, can you go vegan tomorrow? You know, that's quite a bit of an ask for somebody who maybe can barely feed their family and they're taking what they can get at this point. So we just talked to them a little bit about introducing more fruits and vegetables. And then we take it from there to here are some recipes that you can try that aren't super expensive of, you know, maybe $5 for the entire meal, things that actually taste good that you can feed everybody in the household. So we send them that as well. And so we also look at download rates and, you know, things like that from those families. So we know who's actually accessing this kind of content. Now, big picture, we want to actually make the content even more easy to access by having it more interactive. So we're actually looking at partnerships with various apps and uh, websites that actually have journeys for people to take as they're thinking about adding more food, uh, more plant-based foods. So we're we're really trying to think ahead to make it as the barrier of entry as low as possible. Like that's always what what's in my mind. How do we make this as mm -hmm. accessible as possible? So yes, yeah, so those are some of the metrics that we will track, but then we also just sometimes get general feedback about how tasty the food is, um, especially among kids, to be honest with you, because kids are frankly the decision makers in the household and they determine <laughs> what we're going to eat day to day. So it's really important to know and hear from these families that, hey, my kids love this. Like that's huge for a parent to say, my kids love healthy food. Imagine that. 
Yeah, that's a, I find it amazing. <laughs> very, very reassuring. You know, I'm curious because vegans always, you know, you get so skewed by your own, um, by your own Twitter feed or your Facebook feed about what's going on out in the real world. And I think we're all aware that black veganism is, is almost certainly the fastest growing segment of veganism and has, has seen explosive growth. But I'm wondering whether whether, you know, we overestimate that in our minds. And actually, are the people you're reaching already familiar with the idea of, of veganism? Or is this just a new idea for them? Well, I'm not quite sure. I think that's a, a good question for me to potentially ask them. Um, we do know that some people that we receive requests from will actually tell us, I am vegan. So they already, you know, know about the the movement, or mm -hmm. if you will, or the, the lifestyle. Um, but others, honestly... I don't even know if they know that the food they're about to get is vegan, if I can be honest with you, because uh -huh. we'll ask them things like, or at least through their advocate, we'll ask, you know, what foods should we avoid? Um, what are your allergies? And people will say, I'm allergic to dairy and I don't eat salmon. I'm like, well, that's awesome because you're not getting it anyway. You know? So I don't always know how familiar they are. I think that's kind of a a measurement that we have yet to to identify or to to take, but I think it would be interesting to to know that to know who is actually for the first time being introduced and who is kind of familiar but maybe a little nervous about the idea. I will say that it sometimes takes that one person within the community, the advocates community, to try the food before others will be willing, because I think that there is a a belief that vegan food does not taste good. Mm -hmm. Um, I do remember a few stories where, you know, advocates have said, well, we don't have anybody that's vegan. I said, well, do you have people that eat vegetables? And they're like, yeah, okay, well then we can serve everybody because yeah. everybody eats vegetables. They're like, oh yeah, that is true. I'm like, yep, there you go. So the other part is we've had advocates tell us, well, we don't have people who are interested in vegan food. And I'll say, just find me one person in your community. Now, I know that's kind of weird for someone to say, hey, I'm in need, but I don't want vegan stuff. And it may be because their idea of vegan food is some of the stuff that they've seen at KFC, like, oh, this is the not chicken or this is the not beef versus the basics of veganism, which is plants, legumes, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a little bit of a, of a, an uphill battle. I'm not going to say it's it's difficult, but it does require that one person, two people try what we have. And they're like, oh, this is great. Tell everybody it's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. so then from there, it becomes a lot easier. And then we see, you know, an uptick of referrals from within the Advocates Network. Well, that is basic human behavior. Uh, yes. You know, people have to, there has to be one person who, who leads the charge and then other people see that it's okay. Yeah. It, it, it makes total sense. You know, I, I know that food love is your passion and your, your project. And, and maybe that's, that's what might be vegan is going to be doing for the entire future. But could you go through a few of the projects that you've done in the past, which, uh, you know, we're not as huge and all encompassing, but we're pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't think Might Be Vegan is going to be going anywhere anytime soon. It's it's my creative space. Um, it is the way that I earn money. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that at the same time, earn money and have fun. So Might Be Vegan, our primary focus is on experiential marketing and content creation. Because of the present situation pandemic, we haven't been able to do as many in-person experiential things as we would have liked, but we still are able to do quite a few online things. The very first experiential activity or event that we did was during the Super Bowl that was in Atlanta. I think it was maybe two, three years ago. And we hosted the largest unofficially vegan-only tailgate so far. We had about 1,500 people that showed up. Jeez, that's and, unbelievable. And we fed them for free during the Super Bowl, which is like so amazing. And we were able to feed them for free because of all the things that we've been talking about, Mary. Just the fact that people may not be willing to try something if they're not familiar with it. So we said, hey, you don't have to pay us a dollar. You can tip us though, but you don't have to pay for this. And give it a try. And I, I kid you not, we had people who were like, please give me your collard green recipe. You didn't put any turkey necks in this? No, I didn't. Can you put like, what is the recipe for this chili? This is the best chili I've ever had in my life. Wait, those are ribs? 
there's no, what? Like (laughs) people were just all together, just surprised. Now, obviously we had quite a few people who were vegan and wanted to participate in the festivities and wanted to just show up. But then there were a lot of people who had never had anything like this before. And it was just mind boggling for them. And that was super fun. We tried to do it the second year, didn't work out as well. Just long story short, it just didn't work out. So we had to figure out what we're going to do next. And that's when kind of food love entered in. But a lot of the content creation, aside from the experiential marketing, like I said, we do a lot of content creation. So I've made some like mini series for web. So the trap kitchen I did, the splendid uh, the Splendid Family Cook Along, which is an extension of our partnership with Splendid Spoon. We did a four-part series with with a few chefs with Forger Project. And right now, we are in the middle of filming a competitive baking series with King Arthur Baking Company. Oh, wow. So I'm so excited about sharing this because we've we did quite the the bit of recruiting and filming and auditioning and it was just a major major undertaking and I'm so excited for everybody to see the results. It'll actually be the first exclusive completely vegan series that King Arthur has hosted. And so I'm excited to be a part of that. And hopefully everybody will be able to tune in and and check out those episodes. I find it so exciting too, that the sponsorship is from a company that, well, is vegan, but is not like, (laughs) like it just happens to be vegan. Right. The products they make are, are vegan, but that's that's really a big step out of the, you know, this was created in order to be vegan and and it, it just seems like a huge step into the mainstream for vegan food and vegan branding. So that's very exciting. Yeah, for sure. So uh, when can we expect to see that? Oh, I wish I could give you a date. I, I would love to say tomorrow. <laughs> but we have filmed so much content. I'm actually kind of nervous for the editor because she has so much <laughs> to do. So as soon as I have a date, I can share that. Um, but we've there's so much, so much content to edit through. But again, as soon as I have a date, I'll be able to share it with y'all. Well, we will be looking forward to seeing that and, and to all of your ventures. They're all so exciting. And, uh, and I love the way you are helping these vegan companies reach people and, and also helping people find out about vegan food. You have created such a dynamic and exciting career. It's, and then you're doing so much good at the same time. So it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, Kimberly. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts, and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. I really don't know whether I'm going to cover any stories in this section other than ones about cell-based meat and plant-based meat because that's all they talk about anymore. This first column is from Meeting Place. It's by uh, Rick Berman, the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom. And it's called the the uh, Peren Cow Close Peren Tipping Point. You're going to love this one. He starts off by saying, Beyond Meat recently announced multi-year partnerships with McDonald's and Yum Brands, the parent company of Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut. Soon, ultra-processed meat analogs will find their way onto the menus of an additional 88,500 plus quick service restaurants locations across the world. <laughs> you know that? I could just stop there. (laughs) It's like really good news. However, he's pointing out that this is a big problem and we could be reaching a tipping point, but this does not mean meat will suddenly evaporate from store shelves or freezers. Oh, rats. It's not quite good enough, but it's pretty good. Anti-meat activists look to the tobacco playbook for how to marginalize a widely used product. Well, you know, the tobacco playbook worked well. I mean, tobacco's not dead and we do need to do better than that, but... uh, I would say that's a really good playbook to look at. And there's so many similarities. 
Uh, and he's t- pointing out uh, how the arguments will be similar. One is the public health argument, uh, particularly the climate change implications. Another is the personal health argument that meat is bad for you. And the third is the idea of sin taxes, which he expects is to come soon. Well, yay, because all of the, in spite of that, he goes on and on about how none of these things are really true. Yeah, he'll say anything, I, I, I imagine. In spite of his uh, protestations that none of this is true, we all know it is true. So, so we're in good shape. And he, he points to milk. When plant-based milk first appeared on the market, he says the dairy industry considered it a fad, a nuisance not worth addressing beyond ads with milk mustaches. The results are clear. The nuisance left unaddressed became a problem. Plant-based milk continues to gain market share, reaching about 15% today. And even worse, he he points out that uh, a 2018 poll found 59% of respondents who bought both cow and fake milk, as he likes to call it, thought fake milk was just as or more nutritious than cow's milk. So I would say um, this is like my favorite article I've I've read in a while. But then there's another article. It's kind of on the same thing. It's like I said, like this is all they can talk about. This is also from Meeting Place. It's by Danette Amstein, and she is the managing principal for Maiden Marketing. So she is a marketer. And I love this title. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Is the meat industry playing David? to alt proteins Goliath. So they think that they're David and we're Goliath. <laughs> oh my God, anxieties are really uh, are really boiling over there. She points out that plant-based meats are really doing well from a marketing perspective. Then she goes on to make her point that what they consider uh, Goliath, the beef industry is actually David because they're so disadvantaged. You know, <laughs> like uh, by the fact that they're incredibly huge here. But she wants us, them to get their, their answers out to all the questions that are being raised. Beef is healthy. And no, the beef industry is not the arch enemy of the environment. But these messages are not getting through. And she's worried that beef brand A is uh, fighting beef brand B instead of fighting plant-based and, and cell-based beef. Are there beef brands? I don't even know. That's weird. I thought you just went and picked up one of those packages in the supermarket. She points out that we all develop a preference for things we become familiar with, even when we don't know anything about them. In the marketing world, this starts by creating consumer awareness of your product. The all proteins do this successfully. I am so glad to hear this. You know, sometimes I worry that my point of view is skewed, but apparently not. Apparently, they're all worried about the all proteins, as she likes to call them. That's That's kind of a new one for me, but, you know, it's not bad. It is true that we develop a preference for things we become familiar with, even when we don't know anything about them. And from my point of view, that's exactly what happens with meat. People are familiar with meat. They think they have a preference for it. They don't know anything about it because they don't know about the hideous, hideous process of producing it. But anyway, she says this this cycle of, uh, you know, they create first they create consumer awareness and they're doing that. And then that cycle feeds the second behavioral principle being used by alt protein companies, the fear of missing out, paren, FOMO, close paren. Oh, the millennials and Gen Z know this well. In this context, quote, you have to eat alt proteins to be seen as cool and on trend, which helps explain its growth among flexitarians. (laughs) Aren't you glad to know that you're cool and on trend? And it's because you're eating uh, Beyond Burgers. I, I do love it. I, I think I'll just read her final paragraph because it's so cheering. We have to mount an army of soldiers all focused on the same messaging. We have to consistently use messages across all brands to create a bigger megaphone for the industry. We have to continually address the flip side of the old protein story, fighting back the doubt, giving consumers the permission they seek to believe in our brands and our products. And we have to focus our stories on why we do what we do and what will happen if we don't. What, what will happen? <laughs> let's, let's hope we all find out. All right, finally, uh, this is an article by Hannah Thompson Weeman, and it's on the Drover site. Stand up for animal ag. Policies loom that could impact your farm. And she, uh, she points out uh, once again, this is so useful when she does that she's keeping an eye on the legislative process so they're Hardworking ranchers and farmers don't don't have to, and she can keep them up to date on what's happening. And it's pretty awful what's happening. 
um, from her point of view. Bills are being considered uh, now in Arizona, actually a ballot initiative in Arizona, sponsored by World Animal Protection, seeks to restrict housing methods for veal calves, breeding pigs, and egg-laying hens. Well, that would enhance the protections that have already been imposed by ballot initiative there. And I think that would also impose a sales ban. I'm surprised she doesn't mention that. Colorado. This one is crazy. A a quote, a proposed ballot initiative would only allow livestock that have lived 25% of their natural lifespan to be processed, i.e. killed, as well as criminalize artificial insemination and other practices as sexual acts with an animal. Don't you love this? Like, I, you know, I can't believe that they would actually succeed with this because it would end animal agriculture as we know it. But who's going to vote against this? Who's going to vote in favor of sexual acts with an animal or in favor of not allowing animals to live 25 percent of their natural lifespan? People don't know that animals are killed as babies. They don't know that they never reproduce naturally. This will, if nothing else, this will uh, help convey that information to people and maybe make them think twice. Um, There's one in New Mexico uh, about battery cages and also some legislation in in addition to the ballot initiatives. These bills, she says, are being called factory farm bans by some activist proponents. Such bills, they're not really factory farm bans, but they are limitations. Such bills have been introduced in Iowa. A proposed bill would prohibit the construction or expansion of confinement feeding operations. Oregon, proposed temporary ban on the construction of large dairies. And Rhode Island, the Family Farm Protection Act would prohibit industrial-sized factory farming. Pretty good, right? Uh, There's a lot on the ballot, and a lot of it is very clever. I thought the ballot initiatives were kind of over because I thought, you know, they'd been to every state where they they thought they could uh, bring one about the three confinement methods. But they're so smart, uh, our folks, and coming up with such original ideas. And this is really an exciting development. And I can't wait to see how it plays out. Hannah's really anxious about the whole thing, but she's keeping an eye on it for us. And I thank her for that. As she points out, with all of this going on, it is more important than ever for all of us to take action and make sure the perspective of animal agriculture is heard at every level of elected officials, starting with local government. Our future depends upon it. And I would say the same advice applies to us. Only the future of these animals depends upon it. So good to know. Thanks, Hannah, and um, let's get on that. That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.